All right, folks, you want to go ahead and move to your seats. Um, I know this new arrangement's a little bit difficult for us to get used to, but I really want to have everybody come and sit in the circle. It's symbolic. It's symbology. That's what we're doing here. We're making our lives a metaphor. Um, yeah, so everybody come in. Take a seat. That's a sweet time of worship. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been really, uh, really intrigued by recently is just how the act of singing binds us together in the spirit, you know? Um, and it can be such, yeah, such a healing balm for us when we feel lonely or we feel disconnected or we feel inadequate, whatever these things might be. The act of us singing together communally changes something uh, in us. You know, it's, it's almost like what we see in the Psalms where David is like almost like commanding his soul, like, hey, you, get in line, like, let's be here. And I think that's the beauty of, of what we do when we do church is, is coming into this place and saying, like, I don't have to accept things the way they are in my life currently, but I'm going to co-conspire with God to get every part of who I am back in track and in relationship with him, in relationship with the people around me, and even in relationship with myself. And, you know, that's part of what we were talking about last week, this idea of peace, this wholeness or this completeness that we're being invited into. So I just want to encourage you with that, you know, as we're continuing to to, uh, to be bound together in worship, to recognize the peace that God is bringing. Um, so let's pray, and we're going to get into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, we thank you that in this season of Easter, we get to celebrate the resurrection, that we don't look just back at something that happened a couple thousand years ago and try to extract some sort of life lesson out of it, but that we actually get to live in your kingdom right here, right now, that your spirit is breathing into us the same way that you breathed over your disciples and told them to receive your spirit. And that animates us and it realigns us and reshapes us into kingdom people that wherever we go, we reflect your reality. Uh, and we just appreciate that so much, Lord. And, and we want to see that, that kingdom mentality continue to blossom within our community. So, Lord, we come before you this evening uh, with open ears to hear your voice, with open eyes to see you move, with open hearts to receive your truth. Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we summed up um, our big series last week called In Search of the Beloved. And the Lord has given us this big yearly vision for our church, loving community for bold exploration. And the way that we began that process was even starting with what are we talking about when we talk about love? especially with belovedness. And so the Lord invited us to gather around the story of Jesus using the gospel of John to walk through the life of Jesus to his death and resurrection, to understand what does it look like when God pursues us? And in turn, what does it look like for us to respond to that and pursue him? And so now that we've built this foundation of belovedness, understanding what love looks like through the eyes of Jesus, on top of that, we want to really examine the next portion of this, uh, of this vision with a series called Loving Community. And so today is the very first day that we're going to be doing that. And the thing that I want to kind of lay down for the foundation of this season uh, is Loving Community chooses intimacy. Each week, we're going to be looking at one specific example of what does it really mean for us to be the loving community, the family of God that he's crafting uh, in Christ. And so we're going to be talking about loving community chooses intimacy. 
Um, I was in conversation with somebody the other day, and I was talking about how one of the greatest pains of being a pastor, whether it's at this church or the church that I was at before, is when someone comes to me and talks about how difficult it is for them to find a place within community, within our community, and talking about how sometimes it can feel a little bit cliquish, and it can feel like people are a little bit tight-fisted in, in who they value and who they don't. And unfortunately, too many people have walked away from our church because they haven't felt that sense of togetherness. And it breaks my heart, not only because I recognize that it's a problem, but I recognize that I'm also part of that same problem. That there are uh, prejudices within myself that I look around at the people in the room and I say, this person is someone that I would spend time with and this person's not really worth much. And, and I'm trying not to look anybody in the eyes when I say that, by the way, to give an example. I'll be like, for example, brief, forget about it. Um, but recognizing within myself that there's a place where I have these prejudices of who I think has value and who I think doesn't have very much value. And if I'm honest with myself, which is really to say, when I'm honest with the Holy Spirit, and begin to examine those things, it's because I'm using all of these worldly standards of human value to judge the people that I've been gifted with in community. And I think for myself and for the process for the rest of us is to learn how do we uh, step into the potentially humiliating situation of being open before the Lord, him revealing to us our prejudices when it comes to community, and then allowing those dividing walls of hostility, as, as Paul says, to fall down. That we, that, we, that we put aside all of the little tribalisms and categories that we put within human community and start to be the kind of people that God is crafting us to be. And so tonight, when we're talking about loving community that chooses intimacy, I'm inviting all of us to be honest before the Lord in that same manner, to say, God, where, where are the places in my life where I'm valuing people in a different standard than the way that you do? And my hope in this is that we recognize it's less about you and I choosing the community we think is worthy of our time and our resources and our attention and more recognizing that we have been chosen into something and that we receive that as a gift. So what I want to do tonight is kind of two parts. First of all, I want to talk about how God envisions community for us, what he has saved us into, and then talk about how do we step deeper and deeper into that reality following the path that God has given us. So the first part is basically this. God is our source. Community is our expression. God is our source. Community is our expression. I think we go wrong when we begin to confuse these things. And we've talked about this many times before uh, at this church, but I think it's so important to come back to when we're looking at this, um, trying to understand what community and intimacy really look like, is that God is our source. He is the thing that defines us. He is the one that gives us our, our, our energy. He's the one that gives us our life. And it's him and him alone that does that. And too often, what we do is we hand over that right of God to define us and to be our source and our example of love, and we offer that to the people around us. And we allow other people to define us. We allow other people to be where we draw our energy from. And inevitably, we find ourselves misaligned with the biblical narrative. And I think we see this all the way back in the very beginning. In, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have these two parallel stories where the writer is telling us about God creating the entire world. But what it really gets into are the intentions behind, behind, why, behind why 
behind why God does this. And so in Genesis 1, we have this beautiful poem that takes this very big 30,000-foot view of how God creates um, the earth and everything becomes a little bit more complex and a little bit more complex. And after God creates something, he says... All right, we've got some Bible stars here. Did anybody, I just heard about this recently. We didn't have this in my church, but they were called like sword challenges or something. What, what is this? You have to find the Bible verse first? That's cool, because we should compete with one another in church, right? Anyway, but you guys obviously passed because you know where this is. So in Genesis 1, everything God creates, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then we come into Genesis 2, and it tells the same story, but from a different angle. Now it's less about God bringing order to chaos, and it really hones in on God creating mankind. And so in Genesis 1, God creates mankind. He says, let us make mankind in our image. And so he says, he created the male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2, he begins to, to, to build the earth, and he puts in the plants and the rivers and all of these things, and then he decides to make man. And as we examined last week, God takes the soil of the earth, and he breathes his breath into it. He animates the earth and creates the very first man, and we call him Adam. And what this tells us is that you and I, as creatures, are made out of physical matter and out of spirit, and those two things married. And that we are unique in all of creation because we are the marriage of the physical and the spiritual. And that God doesn't want us to abandon either one of those, but he does want to see reconciliation in those. And so he creates the first man, Adam, and he, Adam becomes the gardener. I, I love like yesterday was Earth Day, so we're really coming back to this reminder of, oh, guess what? Our first job as human beings was to take care of the planet. The very first thing that God said, be blessed and increase in number and subdue the earth. And subdue sounds like this really controlling word, but it really means to cultivate the earth. Help the earth, the plants and the animals, do the things that they're invited to do. And so Adam is that first gardener. And by extension, that's uh, all of us. That's our job is to, is to care for God's creation and to enable it to do what it's doing. And so Adam play, or God places Adam in the garden, and then he looks at him, and he says this in verse 18 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this is the first time in the whole scripture that God looks at something and says, that's not good. It's the first time. Everything else he's created, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates man, he says, it's very good. And then he looks at Adam's situation. He says, it's not good. And saying, this isn't the way that I designed this to be. And so God recognizes the loneliness of Adam. This man that, you know, we would say for all intents and purposes has everything. He has complete intimacy with God, completely unfettered access to God. He has everything he could possibly want in the garden, but God still says, there's still something missing. You know, I think many of us have swallowed this lie in the church that says God is enough. God is all I need, which is by extension to say God is all I need and therefore I don't need anything else in creation, especially other human beings. And I don't think that's the biblical narrative. I don't think that's the truth. Because here in the beginning, God sees a man who has complete intimacy with him and says, this isn't enough. This isn't good. And so God makes the move to create Eve. And many of you know that story. And I love that that phrase, suitable helper, that he uses, it's one of my favorite phrases in scripture. It means um, a suitable helper, but kind of more in the way of being a mirror image or a corresponding strength. 
And I think that this is certainly the beauty of what we see in the covenant of marriage as a symbol for what it is with, between creator and creation. But it actually becomes the, the template for all of us in community. That when God gives us community, God gives us other human beings because he recognizes our need to relate, to share the experience of being a human being. You see, Adam finds his source in God, but there's no expression of that source. There's nobody else on his level in the hierarchy of all creation that's living that same kind of life. And so God gives Adam uh, Eve, not as another creature that's supposed to bow down to him, but as a mirror image, a corresponding strength, so that he can bounce his image of godness off of her and see what comes back. And that she, in turn, can bounce her image of godness off of him to see what comes back. And so God is our source. But community, other people, the relationships you and I have been blessed with become the expression of that source as we receive and reflect the reality of God off of one another. And it's such a subtle changeover there to recognize when we've moved from community being the expression of our source, who is God, to community being the source itself. And I think this is the beauty of Jesus' great command. You know, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, what is the greatest command in all of Torah? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we find later on in Paul, Paul just skips the first one and goes straight to the second one and says, that's the greatest commandment. Because I think what Jesus and Paul are both recognizing is that intimacy with God is intimacy with mankind. They are so intimately tied together that God is our source, but community, our relationships with one another are the expression of that source that we so desperately need. And maybe even to be more blunt with it, show me how you love people and I will tell you how you love God. Show me how you treat other human beings and I will tell you the quality of your connection with God, the creator of all. They're so intimately tied together that to do one is to do the other. And so what does it look like for God to create create a new humanity, to craft a new people, a new family through what he did with Christ Jesus in the resurrection that we celebrated last week and every week to come? God chose us without prejudice. We choose one another in the same manner. God chose us without prejudice. Do you realize, I think this is so important, your worthiness or unworthiness had nothing to do with God choosing you to be part of his family. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Think about that for a second. God chose you without prejudice. He didn't look at you and look at his charts and measure you up and go, I don't know about this one. We're going to give them a couple more years, see if they figure it out, and then maybe they'll be able to earn a spot in my family. Because this is what you and I do to each other all the time, every day. So we have some sort of prejudice. We have some sort of standard that you have to meet my expectations in order to be part of my family. But God chose us without prejudice, and I think the invitation is that for us to choose one another in the same way. We're going to be looking at three little passages from the letter to the Ephesians, one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. And Paul is writing to a church that, just like so many of the other churches that those first letters were written to, was completely divided all, uh, over all of these tribalistic mentalities. 
that the people in the church of Ephesus, just like in the church of Rome and in Corinth, they were looking at one another and using human standards of value to decide who's in and who's out, who's worth something and who's not worth very much. And there's kind of these three movements that we see in the letter of the Ephesians that I think are so beautiful. That we Ephesians 1 and 2, where, where Paul is really talking about this heavenly perspective of what it is that God has really done through Christ. And in Ephesians 3, he starts to hone in on what is the family that we've been rescued into? What does that family look like? What are the standards that kind of hold us all together in God's new reality? And then Ephesians 4 to 6 are saying, now therefore, because you've been chosen into this kind of family, how is it that you're going to love one another? So we're going to look at three passages that just kind of typify those three movements in Ephesians. But this week, I encourage you to go and to read the whole letter. So first, Ephesians one, we're going to look at verses 3 to 14. Now, I think one of the greatest gifts that we were given was 10th grade English class. It's amazing to me that we learned how to interpret literature, and then we don't apply that to the scriptures, because apparently there's something different. But I think we can use some of those lessons. So this is the one that we're going to use from 10th grade English. Maybe this goes to 6th grade. I don't know. Listen for verbs. Can anybody define what a verb is for me? You guys are so good. Look at this. Stickers for everybody. <laughs> listen to verbs and listen to the tense of the verbs. Who's doing what? And this is going to show you this kind of first idea that you and I, we were chosen by God in Christ. Okay, we're going to begin in verse 3. And this is so fun because in, in the Greek, this is like one run-on sentence. It was just like Paul was like, and he was like so excited about it. I'm not going to perform it that way. But listen for those verb tenses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And this is what it is, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Remember that Adam is, is earth, physical matter, and spirit, the breath of God, brought together in complete harmony. And the thing that was torn asunder, or even more fancy phrase from the KJV, was cleft in twain. It was all of creation itself. And so God's purpose in Christ is to bring back together what was ripped apart. And that's true within yourself, and that's true within all of creation. And so God intends to do that through Christ and the new family that he creates out of the work of Christ. And so Ephesians 1, we see that we were chosen by God, and there's these phrases, he chose us in him. He was, we had adoption to sonship. It was freely given to us. It was lavished upon us. You see, this isn't the God that has that impoverished mentality. When we think God is enough, usually we're thinking of this impoverishment. What's the bare minimum I need in order to survive? But God doesn't think in those terms. He thinks in terms of abundance. 
And so when God creates, he doesn't create with the bare minimum in mind. When he created you, he didn't say, what's the fewest amount of people this person needs to have in their life in order to basically function? No, God lavished us with all of these things. And he's given us this family in which we're able to function. And then he gives us that kind of eschatological, which is this fancy word for what's this all going to end up? What's it going to look like in the very end? And it's to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so Paul starts off by just saying, let's just talk about what, how we've been chosen and what we've been chosen into. And let's just get rid of all of these things right at the very beginning that think that somehow you've earned this, that somehow this is about your level of awesomeness or lack thereof. This isn't about your performance. This isn't about you making the standards for who's in and who's out. No, this is about you recognizing what it is that you have been given and how you've been chosen. And so now we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 2. This is a shorter passage in verse 19. So this is Paul describing the family that we have been drawn into. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so because of what God has decided to do in Christ, to bring back together that that was ripped apart, we have been chosen into a new family that transcends barriers. I think it's hard for us to appreciate what the first century world was like. In the past 100 years, we have done so much in the name of civil rights. There have been so many barriers that we have broken through, but it has not always been that way. And it's important for us to recognize that we have a heck of a long way to go. Can I get an amen? Can somebody testify? You gotta jump up. Mm -hmm. That's your job now, okay? We have so much farther to go. But it's hard for us to recognize in the first century, this was the way that people organized themselves. They said it is absolutely about your ethnicity. It is absolutely about how much money you have or how many camels you own. It is absolutely about whether you are a male or a female. All of these different standards, is it this or is it that, that were these little, forced us into these little tribes of who's in and who's out and how we define ourselves. And the revolution, the revolution of Paul's vision for what this new people in Christ looks like had never been seen before. And even uh, sociologists who do not believe in God look at the story of history and say something dramatically shifted in the first century. We can, we can measure it. Something dramatically shifted in humanity in the first century where all of a sudden all of these barriers between people started to fall apart. And so we were brought into this covenant family that transcends barriers. Later on he says, there is no Jew nor Greek, male and female, slave nor free, for we are all one under Christ Jesus. And that becomes the mantra of the people of God. That's the defining characteristic of the church. And I love here that he uses this familial language. He says fellow citizens, and he says also members of his household. In Ephesians 1, he talks about we've been adopted to sonship. I love the image of family because I think God has gifted us with the idea of family because it's a chosenness that we did not choose. 
You did not choose your parents. You did not choose your siblings. You did not choose your children. They're the ones you were given, right? And there's a different kind of chosenness. And I believe that God gives us families almost as this little template for us to understand the deeper reality of what it means to be chosen. Some of you haven't met my youngest brother, Joel. He's six years younger than me. And you wouldn't, we, are, you, we couldn't be more different. Um, when he was in high school, Joel karate chopped a coffee table in half because the Detroit Lions lost a football game. Now, if anybody in here knows anything about football, you know that the Detroit Lions have literally been the worst team to play this sport right through the, or the early 90s into the two, well into the 2000s. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was worth us having to go out and get a new coffee table. We are very different people. And a couple years ago, my brothers, so Scott's two years younger than me, Joel's six years younger, we were having this conversation, and we were saying, if we weren't brothers, would we even be friends? You know, Scott's a little bit like me, I think he's, he's funnier than me, he dresses a little bit better, he's a little crankier than me, which is saying a lot, but we're similar, but Joel and I are very different. We said, would we have actually chosen each other? Would we have chosen a relationship if we were just friends? And I think it's an interesting experiment. Because if we had just chosen one another, we probably would have walked away from each other a long time ago. But there's something about blood, there's something about DNA that says, I'm, I'm not going to walk away from this. You know, when we begin to recognize, like, your parents will never not be your parents. You can choose to ignore that familiar relationship or you can choose to accept it. Your siblings will never not be your siblings. Your children will never not be your children. The writing's already there in the DNA, but it's the chosenness that you're given, this different kind of chosenness that says, what am I going to do with what I've been given, with what I've been gifted? So family is this different kind of chosen. And so Paul begins to give us this image of what does it look like to be of the family of God, that we have been chosen into something, not that we have chosen it. And he continues on in Ephesians 4 through 6, like I said, and kind of crafts, what does it look like for us to love in this new family? And I just want to hover in, in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This covenantal family that we've been gifted with changes our understanding of love. That we don't love based on who we think is worthy of being here and who we don't think is worthy of being here. But we love one another because God has chosen them into this family. And who are we to disagree with him? Who are we to disagree with God and the decisions that he's made about how he wants to draw unity into all of creation, not least of which in this family? But I think there's two ways in which you and I hold community in an unhealthy need base. Like I said, I think community, there's a really great way in which we need community because it's the expression of God as our source as we learn how to reflect God to one another, but we also receive the gift of God from the people that we're in community with. And there's an unhealthy way in which we can hold community. There's two kind of subcategories there. I think first of all is when we see community as an entitlement, that it's something that we deserve, 
It's something that we think we are inherently owed for some kind of category or standards that we've received from the world around us, some other value system. And when we have this sense of community's entitlement, we walk into a room just like this, and we'll say, these people are worth my time, and these people are not. Again, I'm not looking anybody in the eyes. You're all worth my time. You're all my sweet children. You belong here. But we have this sense of entitlement. We look around and say, who's worth my time, my resources, my attention, and who's not very worth it? Several years ago, I was working with a young lady in our community in Nashville through this very question. And she'd been part of our church for about a year, um, but she was really struggling because what had happened, she came in kind of on day one and ascertained who were her people, and then by extension, everybody else wasn't. And she was trying to make friendships. And you know that really fine line between contributing to a conversation and inserting yourself into a conversation? She didn't know where that line was. And she was, and she was filled with anxiety because she didn't feel like she was being accepted. And here was the, here's the really tricky part about this sense of entitlement. Um, it's that we end up doing, like, doing exactly the opposite of what we desire. And she found that she was being rejected more because she was trying to find herself in a certain group of people. And so she came to me and we began to talk about it. And I said, I think that you came in with this understanding of who your people are. And there are all these other amazing people within our community that are waiting for you with open arms that would be such a gift to you if you would let go of these tight-fisted expectations of who's worth your time and who's not. And I think you and I miss out on some amazing people when we have already determined who we think is worth our time and who isn't. I know many of you. I've had a lot of coffee with a lot of you, and you're amazing, and you're weird, and you've got all these little idiosyncrasies, and you're into totally bizarre things that I've never heard of before, and it's amazing. And my life is richer because I know a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> People that I never thought would be on my side. People that if I wasn't part of the family of God, I'd say, oh, well, they're interesting, but they're not really my kind of people. And so I think we can hold community in a sense of entitlement. I think the second thing is when we think that community is something that we have to earn, when we come in and, and there's these standards in the culture around us that say your value is directly tied into your performance, that you are what you do. And we bring that mentality from the world into the church and we think that's how it works, that we have to earn our way, we have to perform for people in order to get them to like us. And the problem with that mentality is that we drag the shame that we feel in the world right into the church, and then the church becomes the source of shame within us. And we even start to believe that about other people. We need other people to perform for us. And so it becomes, again, this whole performance and competitive narrative that we're this is the very thing that we're supposed to be delivered from. Because what we hear when we're in that kind of unhealthy community is that we aren't enough the way that we are. We need to change. We need to be better. We need to perform better in order to find our place. And whether we hold community as a sense, in a sense of entitlement or we see it as something that we have to earn because we're not good enough, neither of those options is really seen as being a gift. It leads us into this unhealthy need. In the biblical language, we call this an idol. When there's something that's good and that we need, but we think that it's our source instead of the expression of the source that we have in God. But I think the invitation for all of us is to learn how to receive community as a gift and not a sense of entitlement, not something that we deserve. 
So we're going to watch uh, a video for a moment of a woman in our church who demonstrates this so beautifully and has a great message for us when it comes to receiving community as a gift. wanted to make the cups because I wanted to find a way to honor our whole community because we're family and community is a gift because we could be sitting around by ourselves. I mean, God didn't even like it by himself. He created us to be in community with him. Like, like the joy of having another person in the room or another person to share your stories with or another person to go shopping with or some somebody there to kind of like bounce things back off of you. Like, that's the greatest gift that we've been given. I wanted to show people an example of a way that they have the ability to pour out and to be poured into, that God is constantly filling us up. He doesn't want us to be stagnant. He wants like that water to like pour out into other people. But we all have the ability to be used in the same way, but in different ways. We're uniquely made. Some of us are gifted with different things, but we all have the ability to pour out and to be poured into. Loving one another well is the biggest thing. And loving one another is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's joyful. God wants us to love one another well and to build community. I love the image that Heather has gifted us with. These little cups, and they're all made from the same stuff, but each of them has a slightly different character to it. It has a slightly different feel. It has a different tint. And they're all intended for the same purpose, but the way in which they accomplish that is so different. So can we just give Heather a round of applause for a second? So what... Heather came to me over a month ago and had this vision from the Lord and, and saying, like, this is, this is the project I feel like he's, take, he's asking me to do. And so she's made 200 of these cups, um, and she wants to give them to each of you as a gift. And so they're sitting in the back. When you're leaving tonight, I want you to go over and to take one of these with you as a reminder um, that community chooses intimacy. And so how do we make that transition from the idolatry of community? First of all, saying... I don't need community, or saying I need community, but community is my source, to learning to recognize it as a gift, as the expression of our source who is God. Receiving community as a gift means laying down our tribalism in order to reveal our belovedness to one another. The philosopher Peter Rollins calls the church space the suspended space. That he believes when Paul says there is no Jew nor Greek, male and female, slave nor free. What he's saying is all of these identity markers are something that we kind of leave at the front door when we come into this space to worship together. And we recognize that at the core of who we are, all of us, we are the beloved. This is what we've been looking at this whole season. That outside of our race and ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our biology, whatever it might be, when we peel back all the layers, we are the beloved. That's the truth that we explore in this space. 
And see, this is the beautiful thing. Those differences don't go away. All of your little markers, they don't disappear. We don't want to be the kind of church that says, oh, I don't see color. (laughs) I think that's really poisonous. But we say those aren't the things that define who I find value in and who I don't find value in. And I think when we recognize in the suspended space of church that our, our core, our mutual humanity is being the beloved, then everything else, all of our stories and our personalities and our, our gifts, all these little markers, they become the gift that we offer to the rest of the community. And it doesn't mean that all of us become the best of friends but it does mean that there's an openness and a devotion to one another. That we recognize that we all matter. There's nobody in here that's excluded from that. And I think when you and I are able to receive community as this gift and opportunity to reflect and to reveal the reality of God, then we move from community being an idol, something we choke the life out of because we're trying to find our source in it, we move to being an icon. And an icon just means the thing beyond the thing. You know, the picture that leads to the deeper truth. And so when we receive the gift of community, every single relationship that you and I participate in becomes an opportunity to learn something deeper about the reality of God. And I think this is the beauty of all of the different types of relationships that we have in Christian community. And I think actually it is poisonous for us to not define the kind of relationships that we have. When we try to dump all of these different labels into one human being, I think we start to convolute what community means and we actually rob ourselves from better relationships. I personally, this is just my opinion, and I know there's obviously different people have different opinions in this room. If I ever get married, I don't want that person to be my best friend. I want my best friend to be my best friend. And I want my wife to be my wife. Because I want to actually elevate what wife means and not bring it down to the level of best friend. And I've re- there's been many relationships in my life where I've recognized this is, a, this is a mentor-mentory relationship. And I'm not gonna label it as a friendship because it actually muddies the waters and changes the expectations of what we're doing here. And as I've learned to better define the relationships in my life, I recognize that each of them is a unique opportunity for me to reflect the image of God and in turn to receive the image of God. And that's what all of these relationships for us do. I love there's this beautiful moment in the story of Jacob when he's, he's going back to his brother Esau, the one that he stole the birthright from. He hasn't seen him for years, and he's terrified. He doesn't know what to expect, and he gets there, and lo and behold, Esau receives him with open arms and weeps over him and just celebrates the life that, he, that Jacob has. And he's so surprised that he says to, to him, uh, to see your face is to see the face of God. I love that image. Because I think when you and I are in healthy relationship, when we're in healthy community, that's what we get to say to one another. To see your face is to see the face of God. And we become the icon for one another. We become the thing that points to the other thing that leads us into a deeper understanding of what God is really like. Healthy community becomes the taste of the goodness of God. And every relationship you have is saying, this is is just an ounce of what God is really like. This is just a hint of the love that God has for you. So I want us to take a moment. I want you to turn to the people sitting next to you. And I want you to ponder this question together. When was a time in your life you felt chosen and it changed you? When was a moment, there was a a person or a community, whatever it might be, that chose you and it changed your understanding of God and yourself? Let's just take three minutes to, to ponder that.
So God has offered us this vision of a, of a new humanity, a new people, a new family that's not defined according to ethnicity or any of these other markers, but is defined by being chosen in Christ. And it's in that place that we learn to re- reflect and receive the reality of God as our source. But how do we walk into genuine intimacy and community as God intended? This is one of those buzzwords in modern church that almost becomes obnoxious uh, because we overuse it. And not only do we overuse it, but it it gets misapplied so many places. And so what I want us to do is look at what what is the path that God offers us to walk deeper into relationship and understanding what genuine intimacy is. And I think we choose into intimacy by transparency, vulnerability, and intimacy. We choose into community by transparency, vulnerability, and intimacy. Now, these things aren't just a linear path. This is an oversimplification. It's a little bit more of a cycle, but I believe that when we take those three ideas that are intimately tied together and we pull them apart and begin to define them, it will show us what we're really talking about and where we're really headed. And so the first one, transparency is freely given information. Transparency is freely given information. And so we talked about how it looks like we're building a house, okay? Transparency is you coming and describing to me what your house looks like, okay? It's a 2-1 on blocks, you know, and it's got a carport or whatever. Like, you describe your house to me, okay? That is transparency. We were talking about it this week and trying to ascertain what's the difference between these two things, and Cole gave me the most glorious phrase that has ever been spoken, transparency dump, transparency dump. And I was saying, what on earth is that, a transparency dump? Have you ever been in a situation where you've been given a little too much information? Or maybe you've been the one that's done that? That's called a transparency dump from now on, okay? And, and what, what's going on there? I think when we confuse transparency for, in, for intimacy, we think it's the amount of data that's exchanged between two human beings that brings them closer. We think, the more that I share about myself, the more information that I give you about me, somehow that's breeding intimacy. And I think that's one of the places that we see our desire for greater depth and intimacy. Actually, it it does the opposite, and it can very easily push people away when we dump all over people all of this information. And the crazy thing is that we can hurt ourselves and we can hurt other people by sharing information too much because it ultimately doesn't equate to intimacy several years ago i had a student in my ministry school she came in on day one and she said i just want you to know i'm an open book i can i'm going to tell you anything i don't hide anything And i said okay let's take a look at that and so over the next six weeks i got way too much information i she just laid it all out there a little bit more than even i was asking for and there was a lot and she had a you know, very broken past, she had a very broken family, she had done all these crazy things, and, and I knew about all of it. And about six or seven weeks into the school, uh, something happened with her father. They ended up in hospital, and he almost died. And her family was from up in New York, and we're in Nashville, Tennessee, and she came into my office that morning early so that we could talk about it, and she was just absolutely shattered. I mean, she couldn't be there to be with her family. She felt powerless. She felt confused. She was only getting limited amounts of information as as she was getting it from her her mother and from her brother. 
And so we sat together and we, and we talked about it and we wept together and we prayed together. And after about an hour, I turned to her and I said, you know, I feel like I've known a lot about you, but this is the first moment I've actually known you. And for me, that was one of those moments of recognizing, ah, there is a difference between transparency and true intimacy. That us knowing a lot about one another is not the same thing as us knowing one another. And I think a lot of times we overshare facts and data in order to manufacture intimacy because we're trying to remind other people that we exist. And maybe it's because we are not entirely convinced that we exist either. And so we come in and we say, I'm here and I'm real and I have problems. And we just start to bark all of these things at anybody who will come to us and we end up pushing people away and we don't understand why. Because we know that we're called to intimacy, we know we're, de- we're designed for it, but we can't find it there. And so just, here's two concepts that I have found really helpful when it comes to the issue of transparency. And this is really personal for me because I stand up here, you know, almost every week, and this becomes the question, what do I share with you in terms of the data about my life, about facts that leads us into deeper relationship, that maybe unveils some truths, and, and, and what are ways that that might actually harm the environment that we've created here. And I think these are useful, whether you happen to be standing on a stage sharing with people, or if it's in your one-on-one relationships. Number one, just say, why am I sharing this? Why am I giving this data to somebody else? Why am I giving this information? Am I using my story as a weapon? Am I using it as bargaining chips in order to get someone to feel sympathetic for me so I can draw them into unhealthy relationship? Am I using it just to get people to notice me? And so the bigger and more exaggerated stories that I can tell of my life, perhaps the more that I'll get information. I've known many people that have been so broken in their understandings of intimacy that any kind of attention they're getting, you see this especially in romantic relationships, any kind of attention they're getting is good. Doesn't matter if it, you know, what is it, the, the, uh, even bad headlines or good headlines, you know, it's like that kind of mentality. As long as people are paying attention to me, doesn't matter. And so asking, why am I sharing this? Is it a desire to seek healing? Is it a desire to grow closer to this person? And I think the second thing is this, am I being kind to myself? And am I being kind to the other person? I think when we begin to examine transparency through the lens of kindness, kindness to ourselves, kindness to our stories, but also kindness to other people, it begins to realign those things that have fallen apart. And so I have learned, um, painfully so at times, that there are moments in my life that if I share information with another person, it's actually going to hurt them. And, I'm going, and it's going to hurt me and it's going to hurt the relationship. And I've learned that the hard way, and perhaps you have too, where you've given somebody a precious piece of information, but they weren't in a place to receive it. There wasn't a level of maturity, there wasn't a level of devotion, and they didn't know what to do with that, and it either hurt them or it came around and hurt you later on. And see, that's the, that's the subtle transition for me in transparency. It's when we, it's less me-centered and it's more other-centered when we're practicing that opportunity to be in community with one another, a genuine loving community. And it's important that we operate in transparency out of love for self and love for others instead of fear. I think that's the lie we've heard is that if we withhold anything, then we're just doing it out of fear. But to be, uh, to be good stewards of our stories, 
to be good stewards of the information about us and to offer that to other people because we're pursuing more loving community is absolutely key. And so transparency is freely given information. Number two, vulnerability is open invitation. Vulnerability is open invitation. So you have described your house to me and now you're swinging wide the door and you're beckoning me to come in. This is what vulnerability looks like. And I think vulnerability comes in that place, as I mentioned before, when we begin to recognize our common humanity. When all of those dividing walls of hostility, all of those masks that you and I wear from day to day in order to get people to like us or notice us or maybe to get people to, to, to not see us, when all those masks come down and we invite somebody into our story, we invite somebody into our home, this is the place of vulnerability. I have a really good friend in Nashville. His name is Roman Haviland. And the first time I became aware of Roman, I didn't know him at this point, but I became aware of him, was going to see his band play. He was in this metalcore band called Maylene and the Sons of Disaster. And the first time that I saw Roman and his band, he was playing the bass, and they're literally spending 45 minutes just spitting on each other on stage while they're playing this music, and their singer is kind of like up in the rafters somewhere. And I thought, huh, okay, that's, that's, a, new, that's a new one. And eventually, Roman, um, he moved to Nashville, and he became part of our church, and I met him, and, and he's from Alabama. Now, when I say he's from Alabama, I mean, like, he's from Alabama. You know what I mean? Like, he is deep south. And he's built like a refrigerator box. He's bigger than me, and he's just huge. He loves hockey. Nashville Predators are, like, his team. He's got this big, like, like raging red beard and long red hair. And the first time I met him, I was like, huh, we will have nothing in common. Great. And I just kind of, like, walked away. And this is what we normally do, right? We meet people, you know, in community time here or after church or whatever, and we're like, wow, you, I authenticate, are an actual human being. Okay, anyway, moving on. Let me find the people that look like me. There was this moment we were, we were having um, some special events at our church where we were opening it up for people to come in and to sit and to process with the Lord. And um, Roman and I ended up there together, and we were up in the balcony, and, and he, he just needed somebody to talk to. So he came and he sat next to me, and he began to share some things in his life that he was struggling with. And it was amazing because as he started to share these very, you know, pretty intimate details about what he was wrestling with, I began to realize, like, oh my goodness, yes, yeah, me too. Yeah, I have that, you thought you were the only one? Yeah, oh my gosh, me too. I struggle with that. And as he began to share, I was able to kind of affirm these struggles that he had. And we went for a walk around the block several times and we came back together and we laid hands on one another and prayed for each other. And he became a really beautiful friend to me because I realized in that moment that all of those, those surface things that initially it had caused me to write him off didn't really matter. And that we had this common humanity. We had this common thing that we are broken, but we're loved by God. And that drew us together in a way that none of the tribal systems possibly could do. And I think that's what vulnerability looks like, the open invitation to recognize the humanity of the other person and to still choose to step into relationship with them. And so transparency is freely given information. Vulnerability is open invitation. And the final thing, intimacy is committed communion. Intimacy is committed communion. And so what does this mean? You've described your house to me, so I know where it is. You've opened the door and you've welcomed me into your front room, and now you're actually going to, to sit with me. And we're going, to, we're going to enjoy each other's company. This is the actual place of intimacy. 
You know, several months ago, Greg and Annie uh, were talking about marriage um, up on this stage, and, and one of the things I found so powerful was saying time and again, the, the, the health of their marriage has come back to saying to the other person, I'm for you. I'm for you. Do you realize in this moment, in this place of conflict, in this place of difficulty, I'm advocating for you? Because I think a lot of times you and I, we, we perceive conflict in a relationship and we automatically assume the other person has it out for us and that they're against us. And I think when we are able to sink to that foundational level that we are for one another, that we are advocating for each other, that becomes the foundation upon which our home is built. So often when I'm doing conflict resolution in our community, what I have people do is kind of envision you've built this house together of your friendship or your romance or whatever it is. Can we pull the house down, starting in the roof, pull it all the way down and examine the foundation? Are you actually for one another in this moment? Are you advocating for the other person? Do you believe in them? Do you believe in this relationship? Because if that foundation isn't there, that foundation of intimacy, then whatever you're wrestling with up here on the roof doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, it's a non-factor. Because if it's not this, it's gonna be something else that's gonna tear you apart. And so I'm for you becomes the foundation that we build our home upon. You know, my, my group of friends, we've gone through a lot in the past year. A lot of places of brokenness, a lot of struggle, a lot of conflict, and it was so easy at certain moments in the past year just to say, this is a little bit too much, I don't feel safe here, I don't feel comfortable here, I'm just going to walk away and find a different group of friends. But it was our ability to choose forness, to choose, that, to recognize that we are chosen for one another, that we were able to persevere in the midst of conflict and in the midst of pain, and it actually brought us closer because they began to show us what our friendship was really made of. And I think that's the beauty of what we're all invited to, is that when we recognize that we are called, yes, to transparency, but transparency leads us to vulnerability, and vulnerability leads us to intimacy, we will become the kind of loving community that God is inviting us to recognize that we are in Christ. And so I wanna invite you to stand with me. We're gonna worship the Lord and we're gonna believe that God uh, wants to do some things in here by his spirit. And so we're gonna have some people that are stationed over here in our, in our prayer rooms just behind this wall uh, that wanna pray for you for healing, if that's relational healing or spiritual healing or physical healing, they want to pray for you and anoint you over there um, in these rooms to the side. And I encourage you to go and find them. And the rest of us, we're gonna to sing together. We're gonna worship God and we're gonna believe that as we worship God and we proclaim these things, sometimes because we feel it and sometimes because we don't, but regardless, we're doing it by faith, that God is continuing to bind us together as the community that he desires for us to be. So I want you to close your eyes and I wanna read this quote from Jean Vanier. This is my, my prayer for all of us tonight. We will only stay in community if we have gone through the passage from choosing community to knowing that we have been chosen for community. It is for us the place of purification and of support given to us by Jesus that will lead us to a deeper love and liberation, a place where cleansed of our egocentric attitudes, we will be able to give new life to others. Heavenly Father, that is our desire tonight. Lord, we repent of the moments that we have thought that we are the ones that choose community.
Because when we choose community, we choose it on all of these crazy standards that do not reflect your kingdom. Lord, we want to recognize that we have been chosen into community. That because of the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, this new family we belong to transcends all of these barriers that we place in, in between us. And that this community becomes the place of refinement, of purification. Where you begin the process of us learning how to love and how to be loved. In such a way that it sheds all of our unhealth. It sheds all of our brokenness and we find ourselves whole. We find ourselves in that most deepest of truths that we are the beloved. And we can offer that belovedness one to another in freedom and liberation. And so, Father, as we sing these songs together, we give your spirit permission to move in us and through us, that we would receive and reflect your image one to another, and that we would leave this place deeper in love with you and more healthily bound to one another. We pray these things in the strong and the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.